0: You're listening to episode 174 of the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we talk about decolonizing our minds. Welcome to the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we explore how to use the science of psychology, Eastern spiritual practices like mindfulness and compassion, and the game-changing work of self-coaching so you can free your mind and free your life. I'm your host, Anna Verzoni. Hey, hey, my friends. Today, I want to share with you a story about my mom and I, a story about a daughter, that's me, that misunderstood her mother's dreams for her and the joy of lifting the burden of capitalist bullshit. (laughs) Anyway, so I've returned from the Big Island. And ended my time there by attending a day-long council held by one of my teachers, Roshani Ray, at the southern part of the island. And I'd set the intention for this gathering to gain more clarity about what the last 50 years of my life have been about and what the next chapter is supposed to look like. And it also happened to be my mom's birthday. She died on November 30th, 2017, thinking about you, mama. So this was also a day of remembering her. So Rashani had a bunch of cards laid out face down in a circle, and they weren't playing cards. They were more like Dharma tarot cards that she had created out of favorite quotes and her artwork, much of which is collage. And she asked each of us to pick a card. I tried to sense which card was calling to me, and I slowly touched it and brought it to my lap. I turned it over and I admired the art on the front, read it, and then began to cry. The weight of the recent past as well as the heaviness of my immigrant mother's wishes and dreams for me became apparent. It all like started to want to pour forth from my fucking eyeballs as like leaders of tears, right? So on the card was a beautiful collage holding space for a quote from Reggie Ray, who's a Tibetan Buddhist Vajrayana practitioner and longtime student of Chogyang Trumpa. And here's what it said. Dharma is not about credentials. It's not about how many practices you've done or how peaceful you can make your mind. It's not about being in a community where you feel safe or enjoying the cachet of being a Buddhist. It's not even about accumulating teachings, empowerments, or spiritual accomplishments. It's about how naked you're willing to be with your own life and how much you're willing to let go of your masks and your armor and live as a completely exposed, undefended, and open human person. (laughs) I was like, damn, this is so perfect on so many levels. First, this teaching came after many recent conversations with teachers I've had about the burden I was feeling to do all these teacher trainings so I could receive approval to share the Dharma in a deeper way. And having a child, having so much debt from all my academic trainings, being the primary breadwinner, the prospect of taking three months out of this life to do a silent retreat plus pay for more of these trainings and programs seemed really daunting. And I was angry that it seemed it was set up for the privileged, and in many ways it is. Not many people have the privilege to leave their family for extended periods of time and be away from a job for that long. And while there are always exceptions, in modern industrialized society, it is a privilege to be able to do that. I've been privileged enough to be able to do two to three 10 day Vipassana retreats a year, you know, for the last few years, less frequently um, before when I had to work even more, right? <laughs> so when I was 19, I did a 30 day retreat in the Himalayas of Nepal, I took a semester off college, but to do more than what I was already doing in my life, like more than the two to three retreats a year, anytime soon felt so challenging. I even almost became a Buddhist nun twice. I mean, you may know that, but on top of other myriad reasons, my family's financial situation made it feel too risky to not have me earning income to help my aging parents. I was an only child, right? And it feels just as hard now to think about going away for long retreats or more trainings with my child and my family right now. And so I've been talking to different teachers about this and some are like, oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe just start out with just taking a month retreat. And I'm just going, oh my God, even that, that's like just a huge chunk of time away from family and especially with a young child and stuff. So one of my BIPOC teachers said, Anna, why do you feel the need to do that? You don't need to do that. You can keep doing what you're already doing. You're already living the Dharma, sharing it with others. Stop needing to validate yourself with these external things. And they were like, I never did any of those. You've already done enough. And what you're doing now to keep going deeper is also enough. You don't need that colonizer thinking. So they said this to me and I was like, okay, maybe. And they smiled knowingly at me. So, so then I pulled this card, right? And this quote touched me beyond my insecurity around sharing the Dharma. It also reminded me of all my credentials that took so much time and money and energy, a lot of money, four graduate degrees, two masters, a doctorate and a postdoctorate, six different coaching certifications, five professional specialist certifications, yoga teacher training, acupuncture studies, Ayurvedic training, and a lot of debt, by the way, And this was not just me loving learning, right? Well, that's 100% true that I love learning and I will always budget for learning, this was also me not feeling enough when I'm being really honest with myself, being afraid that if I didn't have this or that degree that people would prefer someone else. And sure, I am an expert in my field for many of these reasons. And because I've studied a lot and I do know a lot, But that's also not the main reason people choose me, you know, and I certainly don't need all the things I've paid to do to be good at what I do. Degrees and whatnot might be why people first come to check things out, but they decide to work with me, at least they tell me, because of how I show up with them. I mean, you know this too, right? Like people might pick a provider because of their fancy school that they went to And then they have a visit and they're like, wow, that doctor's an asshole and they never come back, right? But I usually don't remember that I'm not my degrees. But this makes sense. The capitalist society most of us live in is so much based on instilling a fear that we're not enough as we are and that it's who we know and who and what we're associated with that will keep us safe and employed and secure, that we can pay more money and earn more money, and then everything will be okay. And I think a lot of us at least have an intellectual understanding that money, while it solves many problems, doesn't ultimately make us happy. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone in a capitalist society that doesn't believe having more money. Keeps you safe or safer. During the pandemic or recessions, who fared better? The wealthy. They may have lost shit tons of money, but they had enough to write it out. You know, like we're told it's the things we can buy and the extractive network we create, our social circle that will send us referrals, the prestigious schools, the top jobs, the resume, the CV, the masterminds we're a part of, the degrees. It goes on and on. And yeah if you're sucked into the capitalist bullshit ideology and system, then yes, that that's actually got a lot of truth in it. But what I didn't know was that I'd spent many years thinking I was just playing the game, but not getting sucked in. I grew up poor, So I knew better than to buy into the bullshit, supposedly, right? I was so happy living out of my car and making $14,000 a year. I know how to do with less. And while that's all true, I didn't realize that I was still very, very afraid of being poor again. I suppose if you hang around something long enough, it tends to rub off, yeah? One of my teachers Temple Smith, who now resides in Canada, pointed out to me that this fear makes sense in the U.S. especially. The U.S. isn't a dana-based society. For those of you not familiar with the term dana, in Buddhism, it's the practice of cultivating generosity, giving with an open and generous heart, which allows the giver to practice renunciation and letting go of their attachment towards possessions, which helps us let go of various ways the mind holds onto this perception of the self, right? And when Donna's given after a retreat to the teachers, it's not like payment for services, but it's a gift given from the heart. And social services can be seen as a way a group of people, a country, agree that Donna is an important value, that giving Helps us, the giver, in our own spiritual growth or in living our social values and that others are worthy. It acknowledges interdependence, right? And in the US, there's not universal health care. And we are the only developed country that doesn't. There's not abundant programs for subsidized housing, even for elders. Education costs a shit ton. A spiritual life isn't one that usually garners like widespread financial or even social support like in other countries, such as India and Nepal. It goes on and on. Anyway, after reading this quote, I realized that I had succumbed to the fears I had growing up. I thought I'd overcome the fear of being poor because I realized I didn't need lots of money for happiness. But while growing up poor helped me learn resilience and grit and how to be happy with very little, I realized that I still had lots of fear about being poor again because it did suck to wait in line for government food. And it was embarrassing to pay with stamps. And it felt shitty when we had to euthanize my pets because we couldn't afford their treatments. And it sucked to be living in a neighborhood with drive-by shootings and not being able to play outside in the front of the house, to not be able to rent rent in a safer neighborhood or to own a house that we weren't always at risk of being asked to move out when a landlord decided to sell their house, right? So yeah, I was still afraid. And I realized all this striving while I knew it wouldn't make me happy. I believed it would keep me safe. So I made it a goal to make big money, not for happiness, but for safety This is why my teacher intrigued me. A big part of what I wanted to learn from her was to trust in the wu-wei, one interpretation of which is the practice of taking no action that is not in accord with the natural course of the universe. Wu-wei, right? Going with the flow, not trying to fight it, to surrender to reality and not fight it because that's when we suffer, right? When we resist reality. She was a nun for a few years. She was a teacher traveling with Thich Han. She sang in subways with her kid for money. She doesn't do any paid marketing. She's this wild lesbian woman with the beautiful young lover living in a garden forest. And somehow people find her. They come to her and want to give money to her. She was gifted land to create a retreat center. I mean, it's inspiring to hear her story. She didn't buy into the bullshit and it's just fine safe. But I also saw that this safety she feels comes from an internal source, that if she wanted to, she could choose the belief that she wasn't safe, even with all that evidence that she's taken care of by something, someone, somehow. And I expressed my fear to the group out loud. And most of them white tell me that there's so much evidence that money doesn't make you happy. And why would I believe that? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, no, I got that. You're missing my point, right? And I ask for an example of a BIPOC person who feels safe in this world without money. Just like, help me out here. Someone who lives in the US, BIPOC, I just love evidence, right? My brain does well with evidence. It's how I calm myself down during turbulence in a plane, data. And instead of giving me an example, people are like, oh, you don't need an example. You can be the first. And I've heard that before from people who were never the first. So also not helpful in that moment. And Rashani notices I'm in like lawyer mode, like ready to argue each point. And she says she can tell I'm in a mind loop and fuck yeah, I am. So she comes at me with the rattle. She's part Native American and uses many practices passed down to her. And the sound and vibration dissolves the walls around me and I surrender. I collapse inside and physically outside. And she asks me what's present and I say, and this is vulnerable for me to share with you all, by the way. This is a very like intimate group that was a very safe container to, to share very clearly and unfiltered what was going on. So I say, I feel like a bunch of white people are telling me I shouldn't be afraid, that how I feel isn't valid. Whew, that's hard for me to say even now, but it was true. That's what was coming up for me. Yes, she whispers. Then my underlying fear is clear. I don't feel safe in this society. And I'm sobbing. I don't either, she tells me. And I come to the floor and now I'm like wailing, snot running from my nose, deep animal cries coming from my belly and my heart. And I'm in this ball on the floor, just hunched over. And slowly, just from grieving this of how afraid I am in the society I live in, I start to feel lighter and I begin to sit up and she takes my hands, even with snot and tears on them, (laughs) and I begin to mourn my mother's dreams for me. You know, she immigrated from the Philippines. She had a sixth grade education and worked so hard, like multiple jobs to pay, you know, the rest of the tuition. I didn't get a scholarship for it. All those schools, the private schools, she got me scholarships into. And I saw that I did exactly what she didn't want me to do working as much as she did, not having financial freedom. And for me, that manifested by going into so much educational debt. And sure, she may have wanted me to have a better life, like live in a safer neighborhood, have more conveniences, but this was to feel safe and have more ease, not to be burdened by debt and stress and stuff. And I remember how I realized You know, when I was a climbing guide, that I was the only climbing guide I knew that didn't have some sort of safety net, like inheriting something when my parents died, even if that was going to be far into the future, like it was going to happen eventually. And that I appreciated how much my mother didn't pressure me to not do it. She never said, don't take that job. it's like such low pay. you know I mean I had such low pay. I think I started at 55 bucks a day, 24/7. Um, you know, after she'd worked so hard to help me go to college, she could see that in that work, me in the mountains I was happy, more than happy, fucking stoked on life. She was like, I can't believe I worked so hard to like help you go through college and all this stuff. And now all you want to do is get paid very little and like sleep on the ground. You know, she's telling me like how they work so hard to get out of the jungle and all the dangers of the jungle and all this. So anyway, she was like, go do it as long as you're happy and you can pay your bills. And I lived so simply I could. Right. And. Over time, I felt the stress of not being able to help my parents as they aged on my small income. So I decided to go back to school to get a job that made more money, gave me more security. I could be more generous with my parents. And slowly, insidiously, I forgot that all my parents ever wanted for me was to be happy, not necessarily successful. But happy. Slowly, insidiously, I started to believe that money made me safer. And the reality is, in this country, it kind of does. But to what extent and how much am I willing to sacrifice for that? And what the fuck am I supposed to do about it? And I'm so moved by this realization and I cry out, I'm so sorry to my mother and I feel her presence. I say, I misunderstood. I see now what you wanted for me. I'm so sorry. And I wail even more deeply. And I'm hearing tears all around me from the people witnessing, all the other women witnessing me with compassion in their eyes and hearts. And I feel my mother's forgiveness for all the ways my busyness and stress came out in harmful ways towards her. It was cathartic. And my teacher says, you've been sucked into that capitalist story, but this is the last day. And she recounts how she sees me shedding this burden, not just from me and my mom, but generations of Filipinx women that bought into the bullshit of the capitalist dream and that now it's being released. She says, you're decolonizing your mind. Yes, this is what it felt like. This was not all mine. It was so heavy. It was intergenerational. There are many other layers to decolonizing our minds, but this was a palpable experience. As you hear me share this, I want to invite you to consider what intergenerational burdens might you be carrying? Intergenerational traumas. Are there any that come to mind? And at another point, she asks me, If I still felt fear and I searched my body and mind and heart, and I was actually surprised to find that I didn't, not because the world can never cause me harm, but because I didn't have the ongoing story running in the background that I was fundamentally unsafe, that the world was unsafe. There are unsafe people, unsafe situations, unsafe systems, but the world itself is not unsafe. I'm not inherently unsafe. I could see multiple paths of confusion I'd been having about where to live, how to raise Maya, how to free myself from debt, become clear. And I take deep breaths. I sit up. I look around. I see the faces of people around me. I look each one in the eyes and speak authentically and am received. And I know from this experience that you are safe too. You may not believe me, but I want you to know that if you feel unsafe right now, I've been there. The realities of living in a capitalist, consumerist, modern, industrialized world exist, and we can choose how deeply we participate in it in certain areas. We can choose how deeply that impacts How we show up in the world, how authentically we live our lives, how we choose how to use our valuable time. Some of us have more options than others because of the circumstances we were born into. And we are more free than we think. There's no judgment here about what we should be doing and what that should look like. You decide, you decide what feels comfortable and in integrity and what's possible. But no, it is possible. I know I'm choosing to still make money to pay off my debt and create the basic safety we all need. And I'm grateful that the education I paid for has given me the skills to help people in such a fulfilling way. One that I can do for a long time. Good thing because I'm a shitty saver, right? And I will flash my degrees when I need to, to open some doors, but I will see them for what they are and what they are not. They are not who I am and they are not what validate my worthiness. And I have my eye on the prize, my friends, and it's not more stuff, bigger and better stuff. It is, as always, true freedom. And that starts from within. So you know, ask yourself, is there a bit of fear about what would happen if you lost financial security or a lot of fear? You know, this capitalist not enoughness also enters into our spiritual life and how we feel we should be further along on the path, making faster progress or in how we compare ourselves to others. Although let's face it, jealousy of spiritual progress, that was around in the time of the Buddha. There's teachings on it even back then. But is there a sense of not enoughness in your practice as well? We may feel like we aren't sucked in, but there are very subtle ways this can all show up. As I experienced during this time with my teacher, very subtle ways that this colonizer bullshit has entered our minds as to what makes us worthy or not. So what's one small choice we can make today to help feel more safe in a society that instills fear in so many ways to keep us down, to feel powerless? Maybe it's to stop scrolling through people's social feeds that you know always leave you feeling less than. Maybe it's to listen to our body the next time we sit for meditation and take care of ourselves when we feel pain instead of power through because so-and-so is still sitting. Maybe we just get up and leave if microaggressions are showing up because it's not our fucking job to fix it, right? Maybe we just walk away when microaggressions arise instead of try to teach someone why we experience that as a microaggression, because it's not our job right then. And if our nervous system isn't up for it, we don't have to do it. Maybe it's to stop window shopping or reading fashion mags, which increase desire and a sense of not having enough. Maybe it's to think about moving to another country or another part of the country that's a slower pace with more connection to nature and community. Maybe, hopefully, it will impact how we vote. Perhaps we choose a different job or a smaller house. Maybe we don't sign up for the next meditation training if we're motivated by fear, but instead sit on our cushion more often at home and sit with the fear. Now, this isn't a call to live a minimalist life, although some people choose that as a path. This is a call to decolonize your mind from the bullshit story that we aren't enough as we are, that we aren't worthy of safety and love and protection just for being alive. Because we are. We all are. Yes, you. This is revolutionary. This is rebellious. This knowing is the biggest step towards freedom that we can take. I'm going to read the last part of that quote again. It's about how naked you're willing to be with your own life and how much you're willing to let go of your masks and your armor and live as a completely exposed, undefended, and open human person. This is what we're holding back from living into When we're believing the bullshit story that keeps us scared, feeling less than, feeling not worthy, it closes us off to our authenticity, which is a gift to ourselves and to others, to our people, to the cosmos, right? So this knowing is the biggest step towards freedom that we can take. So let's take it together. Until next week, my friends. If you like what you heard, spread the love and share it. And if you want to learn more about how to free your mind and free your life, check out rebelbuddhist.com and grab my free Rebel Buddhist training kit where you'll receive a video training on cultivating resilience, a copy of the gorgeous Rebel Buddhist Manifesto, and more. That's rebelbuddhist.com.